0: True North True Crime is now available on Patreon. You can now listen to exclusive bonus episodes, early release episodes, and ad-free episodes by signing up at patreon.com slash tntcpod.
1: This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
0: True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. At the age of 49, one of the world's most famous comedians was at the peak of his career. Everyone in Hollywood loved working with him. Fans around the world adored him. Growing up in poverty in Canada, he could only have dreamed his life would be like this. In the evening hours of May 27, 1998, he played with his two young children in his backyard pool. His wife had gone out to dinner that night with a friend. After tucking his kids into bed for the night, he settled down for a quiet evening. That night, he would die while he slept. Tonight, we are talking about the murder of Phil Hartman. And you are listening to True North True Crime.
1: Welcome back to True North True Crime, thanks for joining us. We just wanted to give a quick reminder that we are now on Patreon, so if you're looking for more True North True Crime, go to patreon.com slash tntcpod and check out the subscription tiers that we have on offer to see which one works best for you. If you're new to True North True Crime, we are a two-person team building these episodes from start to finish with the goal of raising awareness for missing people as well as victims of violent crimes in Canada. We do prioritize cases that come to us from family members or close contacts of cases. So if you need some help getting the word out about a case that affects you, please reach out at truenorthtruecrime@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Before we get started, as some of you know, we were recently in a car accident. Many of you reached out to us on social media to check in, and we wanted to take a moment and thank you all for your concern and well wishes. Your messages really helped us out in a time of need, and they all meant a lot, so from the bottom of both of our hearts, thank you. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode.
0: So tonight we are talking about the 1998 murder of actor and comedian Phil Hartman. I worked in the comedy world for many years, and Phil was one of my all-time favorites. With that in mind, we wanted to create an episode about Phil's life and the tragedy of his death. For those unaware, Phil was a Canadian-born performer who rose to stardom on the NBC sketch comedy show Saturday Night Live. Phil was often referred to as the glue that held things together on projects that he worked on. His death was sudden confounding and tragic. Phil was known on SNL for such characters as Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, The Anal Retentive Chef, Frank Sinatra, Jesus Christ, as well as many U.S. presidents. On The Simpsons, he voiced Lionel Hutz and Troy McClure. He was also known for his role as Bill McNeil on the sitcom News Radio, and he wrote Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Comedy is not easy, and it rarely translates well over the decades. But there is something that was always quite unique and timeless, about Phil Hartman's comedic observations about the world around him. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, as well as the book You Might Remember Me, written by Chicago-based entertainment writer Mike Thomas. As an additional content warning, this episode contains graphic depictions of gun violence, as well as suicide.
1: Philip Edward Hartman was born in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, on September 24, 1948. His name was actually originally spelled Hartman with two N's, but he would later drop one of the N's. The reason for dropping the extra N as an adult was to create a more successful name based on numerology. Phil grew up in his family as a middle child of eight kids. His father, Rupert, retired from the Canadian Air Force and became a salesman. His mother, Doris, was an artist with an entrepreneurial flair she ran a small hair salon out of the front of their family home. The family lived in a two-bedroom brick cottage on Dufferin Avenue. Phil's sister Martha referred to the family as the poorest people in the neighborhood. Despite the poverty, the Hartman kids enjoyed their life in southwestern Ontario. But for Doris and Rupert, they had longed for better opportunities in the United States. This desire would send the family on a trajectory of multiple moves over the course of Phil's childhood. This is a common theme amongst comedians. Canadian Jim Carrey and Chicago native Robin Williams also moved a lot during their childhoods. As a child with seven siblings, Phil struggled to get attention from his tough exterior mother and his absent traveling salesman father. Times were tough, so their focus was mostly on finances, as well as the care of Phil's sister, who had major health concerns. But there were moments of levity in the Hartman household. They sometimes spoke in a made-up language they called Egg Latin, where they placed the word egg in every syllable before the vowel. So Phil Hartman became Fegel, Hegart, Megan. They were a devout Catholic family, so this was a cheeky way for the kids to say bad words. In spring and summer of 1957, the Hartman family moved to Mammoth, Maine, when Phil was just eight years old.
0: Rupert took a job selling building and roofing supplies, and in quick succession, the family moved to Cocknawagon Lake in Maine, then to Lewiston, Maine, then to Meriden, Connecticut, and all these moves happened over the course of one year. In 1958, Rupert secured a job as a Whirlpool appliance salesman and moved the Hartman family All the way across the United States to Garden Grove, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. In one final move, they landed in Palo Alto, California in 1960. As a teenager, Phil loved the California lifestyle. He embraced surfing and a more laid-back life. As he grew up in junior high and high school, he became an artist like his mom. He dreamed of making comic books or expressing himself through drawing. Phil developed a great personality, too, that drew people to him, including teachers. In junior high, he was given the lead in the school's musical production. His high school career was filled with B and C grades. As he aligned more closely with the arts and less with academics, socially he was versatile. One day he would be uh, hanging out with the athlete kids, and the next day he would be hanging out with the theater kids. By the end of high school, Phil was voted class clown. But it was different with Phil. There was like a deep introspection that made him stand out from the typical clown. There was also his crazy ability to inhabit characters that he pretended to be. He did all kinds of impersonations all the time. After high school, in 1966, he attended Santa Monica City College, By this time, his older brother, John, began working as an agent in the music and acting scene in Los Angeles. Now, Phil saw the darkness of the acting business, and he decided to pursue graphic arts rather than the performing arts.
1: Although his courses were primarily arts-driven, Phil was also interested in politics. With the looming Vietnam War, Phil and his friends adopted a more counterculture vibe. Long hair, beards, surfing, and rock and roll. His brother John began signing music acts and created a record label. Phil began working with some of those bands as a roadie, touring around the West Coast. When he wasn't doing that, he was surfing or skiing. Phil had applied for some universities, but was not accepted. By his early 20s, he was kind of drifting, but drifting in a good way. He was living a bit of a rock and roll dream life. He was hit with some heartbreak, though. His high school sweetheart had moved away, and he was hit with the news that she got married. By the early 70s, he was working at a record label as the only member of their art department designing album
0: covers for surfer bands. The big change in Phil's life came in 1975 when he attended a birthday party at a rundown basement space called the Oxford Theatre. On the stage that night was a group known, to this day, as the Groundlings. The Groundlings are one of the most famous improv groups in the world. On stage that night, Phil watched as the comedians experimented with crazy characters, comedy sketches, and completely improvised work. He was inspired, and he joined the group that night. Meanwhile, in New York, a new televised comedy show had launched in the late hours, called Saturday Night Live. Now, the big secret was that Saturday Night Live, or SNL as it's known, was being cast with comedians scouted at the Groundlings' shows. From 1975 to 1986, Phil Hartman worked his butt off at the Groundlings working on characters and stories. His work ethic was second to none. Over the years, he watched as his friends got plucked off the Groundlings' stage and into the stardom of SNL.
1: Phil's success began to come behind the scenes, writing for movies and television. But while he was a star on the groundling stage, he was not a known comic outside of Los Angeles. The ups and downs of being an actor began to catch up with Phil. In 1985, he was 38. While writing was going well, it seemed like nothing else was working. He had helped to launch the career of his good friend Paul Rubens by writing the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure, starring Paul as Pee-wee Herman. But for Phil, no on-camera gigs were coming his way. In mid-1986, this all changed. Phil Hartman finally auditioned for Saturday Night Live. He did an 11-minute set of characters, prop comedy, and voiceover-style jokes. SNL auditions are famously quiet, but the rumors are that Phil crushed his set, leaving the producers in tears. Phil Hartman, now 39, had finally made it to SNL. This was an older age than most people who get cast on the show. All of his hard work had finally paid off.
0: On October 11th, 1986, Phil Hartman debuted on SNL, and the rest, as they say, is history. Phil went on to be a cast member for eight years. During that time, Phil was referred to as the glue, the person who kept it all together. In comedy, there's an old phrase called the straight man. Now, the straight man is the serious person inside of the scene. While the rest of the scene is wacky, there's one person who's just delivering their lines um, with sincerity. Um, Now, this was Phil's wheelhouse. One of his many characters was called Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer, about a caveman who was found thawed in the ice and then became a lawyer. Now, when Phil played this character, he never broke a smile. He played it with the utmost of sincerity. Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer would defend his clients with all of his intelligence, all the while being a previously frozen caveman who was now living in the modern world. In fact, Phil's ability to not laugh during a scene was legendary. If you ever see old clips of SNL and Phil is laughing, you had better believe that whatever just happened was super funny. Phil's time on SNL made him a star in Hollywood and a household name. But it
1: was in Phil's romantic relationships that he would often find pain and heartbreak. After graduating, his high school sweetheart moved away and eventually got married. This, as previously mentioned, was a big blow for Phil. But he would find love again in late 1969. He met and quickly fell in love with a woman named Gretchen Lewis. The two quickly got married in March 1970, but by late 1971, they were divorced. This began a pattern for Phil. He was known to fall in love fast and hard, and then lose interest in making the relationships work. In fact, during disagreements with partners, rather than hash it out in difficult conversations, he would just fall asleep. In 1981, he met a realtor named Lisa Strain, he saw her at a music venue and asked her to dance. Within a short time, Lisa moved in with Phil and the two got married. Again, Phil doted on her with all the affection and romance he could muster. But by 1985, they were divorced. At some point shortly after his divorce with Lisa, Phil met Bryn Omdahl at a Hollywood party. Bryn had been described as a statuesque model, Bryn had grown up in Minnesota and moved to L.A. to become a star. Bryn worked a lot as a model and auditioned for film and TV roles. But by the early 80s, Bryn's career was on pause. She had entered into an inpatient program at the Hazleton Addiction Treatment and Recovery Center for cocaine and alcohol misuse.
0: Phil met Bryn at a time when his heart was still sore from his divorce with Lisa. Over the next few years Bryn and Phil were dating, they broke up several times. It seemed like a pretty volatile relationship. But in Phil's style, he fell in love with Brynn, and in his second season on SNL, he proposed to her. And they got married on November 25th, 1987. In 1988, Brynn gave birth to their first child, a son named Sean. Lisa, Phil's ex-wife, sent them a card congratulating them on the birth of their child. This sent Brynn into a rage, Bryn sent Lisa a written letter stating that if Lisa ever came near her child or Phil, that Bryn would rip her eyes out. This seemed to be a pattern of Bryn's, as she often became threatening around other women who interacted with Phil. What Lisa did not know was that Phil had once told Bryn that Lisa and he were soulmates. Perhaps it was that that sent Bryn into the rage. For Phil, he was now in his forties, married, and a father. His star had risen in Hollywood. He was rich and successful. He bought a 4,700-square-foot home and many cars, including a Ferrari. As his career took him away from home quite a bit, Bryn became an amazing mom, spending a lot of her time with young Sean. Then, on February 8, 1992, Phil and Bryn had their second child, a daughter, named Bergen Annika. After the birth of their daughter, Bryn attempted to get her own career back on track, she hired a long line of nannies so that she could audition and take meetings, but of course she would end up firing those nannies because she would get mad at them. The relationship also had more issues. Cast members often saw Bryn and Phil fighting in the hallways of Saturday Night Live studio. And many cast members muttered under their breath about what they called, quote, Phil's weird marriage. Things began to escalate to violence with Bryn throwing objects at Phil and getting physical with him in front of people. But outside of the relationship issues with Phil, Bryn was described as a generous person and a great mom. She was also a wonderful artist and known to be very funny. She loved Phil very much, but when the trouble in the relationship began, Phil started to withdraw like he had in previous relationships – he just focused on his work. Eventually, Phil began to feel crowded out by the emerging performers at SNL. He had become a regular voice actor on The Simpsons and he was about to join the cast of the sitcom News Radio. So, in the 1993 94 season of SNL, he announced that he was leaving the show. A few years later, in 1997, Bryn went to a treatment center for alcohol misuse. She remained there for one week and then went back home. By the end of 97. Bryn was in a full-blown relapse, drinking heavily and using cocaine. These were often mixed with prescription medication. One of those prescriptions was Zoloft. Now, we bring that up because it comes up later in the episode. Around the house, there were empty bottles and cans. People were also noticing erratic shifts in Bryn's moods. In April of 1998, Phil was given the tragic news that his father had passed away.
1: On May 27, 1998, Phil made his way down to Newport to get some supplies for his fishing boat. Afterwards, he had lunch with a friend. Meanwhile, back at the Hartman home, Bryn was welcoming a new housekeeper after just firing the previous one. Phil returned home around 6pm. Bryn and Phil were attempting to spend more time together. Phil asked Bryn what they were doing for date night. She responded that the date night was the following night. He asked if he could take a quick trip out to Van Nuys, where he rented a hangar to store his Ferrari and other toys. She agreed and made plans for herself and a girlfriend to grab drinks and food. At around 7.30, Brynn hopped into her Jeep to meet a friend at a local restaurant just down the street called Buca di Beppo. Phil got home shortly after Brynn left. He then hopped into the pool with his kids. While in the pool, he laughed and played with his son and daughter. Hours later, Phil Hartman would be murdered while he slept. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors.
0: And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the life of Phil Hartman a Canadian who rose to fame and fortune as one of the world's favorite comedians. In 1998, he was in a unique position of accepting or turning down projects. He had begun to spend more money and live a hard-earned, lavish lifestyle. At home, he was now 49 and a father of two, but there were problems in his relationship, and he was pulling away from his wife and the mother of his children, Bryn. Bryn was becoming erratic and struggling with substance misuse. By all accounts, she was an amazing mom, but she struggled with her career, her place in life, and her marriage. On the evening of May 27, 1998, Phil hung around the house, enjoying the pool and his kids, and Bryn went out for a drink with a friend. By most accounts, Bryn had two cosmopolitans that she nursed over a period of time. She seemed in good spirits, and she wasn't incredibly intoxicated by any means. When that friend called it a night around 9.45, Bryn decided she did not want to go home. So she called another friend, a former boyfriend, named Ron Douglas.
1: Ron was a stuntman who used to party with Bryn. According to Ron, Bryn showed up at his Studio City home, a little buzzed, but not drunk. While at his home, the two talked about her life and her marriage. Bryn downed three cans of beer. At around 12.45 a.m., Bryn left Ron's house and headed home. Ron asked her to call him when she got home, but she didn't. According to the police, the following happened. Bryn arrived home and had clearly been drinking. Phil got upset at Bryn as she was supposed to be staying sober. An argument ensued. The argument escalated and Phil walked away from Bryn. Whenever Phil was upset, he would just go to bed and wake up to hopefully a more harmonious world. Phil got changed into some boxer shorts and a t-shirt. He closed the bedroom door and crawled into bed. Neighbors state they heard a woman yelling, sorry, over and over again. Two hours later, Phil was sleeping and the neighbors did not report any more yelling. During this time, Bryn sat awake drinking and using cocaine. At around 2.20 a.m., Brynn entered the primary bedroom where Phil slept. She went to a closet where they kept their firearms in a metal lockbox. She took out a Smith & Wesson 38 revolver and walked up to Phil. She aimed the weapon at Phil from just 18 inches away and pulled the trigger. This bullet strikes Phil in the neck below his chin. She then steps closer and fires the gun again. This bullet enters his arm that was across his body and exits into his chest. Bryn then moves even closer, now at point-blank range, and fires the gun again. This bullet enters just above the bridge of Phil's nose and into his brain. This shot would prove to be fatal, and death was quick. Phil's children were asleep in the other room. Phil Hartman, the loved Canadian
0: actor and comedian, was dead at the age of 49. Brynn spent the next hour drinking while Phil lay dead in the bedroom. Then, at 3.25am, Brynn called her friend, Ron Douglas. She told Ron that Phil had gone out for the night and that she didn't want to be alone. She asked if she could come over to his house. He said no and told her that maybe it was time to go to bed. Twenty minutes later, Ron's doorbell was ringing repeatedly. He answered his door and there was Brynn. She was clearly intoxicated and upset. Ron got upset with Brynn for waking him up, to which Brynn stated, Don't yell at me. Phil always yells at me. She then barged into his home and fell as she attempted to sit on the couch. On the floor, she began to cry and stated, I just killed Phil. Ron just assumed that she was upset and maybe drunk and not being clear, and there was no possible way that she could have actually just killed Phil. Brynn then passes out. She would wake up from time to time to vomit in Ron's bathroom, and Ron provided her with water and tea, hoping that she would sober up. Brynn then asks Ron to call Phil several times. While Ron is calling the Hartman home, Brynn begins going through her purse. Suddenly, a 38 revolver falls out of her purse. Ron quickly grabs it and checks the cylinder. In that moment, he thought he saw six bullet casings, which means that the gun had not been fired. But then when he looked again, he noticed that three were missing.
1: At around 6 a.m., it seemed that Bryn had sufficiently sobered up. Ron suggested that she drive home and that he would follow her. He took the gun and put it into the trunk of his car. While in her Jeep, Bryn phoned a friend named Judy. Bryn states that she had just killed Phil and that her life was over. Judy quickly made her way to the Hartman house. Ron and Brynn arrived at the Hartman house at the same time, shortly before 6.30 a.m. Brynn opens the door and makes her way to the primary bedroom, with Ron behind her. She opens the bedroom door and sees Phil's body on the bed. She screamed, "'Oh my God, he's dead. I told you I did it. I told you I did it. I killed him. I killed him.'" Brynn then calls her friends Steve and Marcy, she states that she killed Phil, and they also make their way to the Hartman home. Ron then phoned 911. The following is from the 911 transcript.
0: Emergency operator 614? Yeah, hi, this is 5065 Encino Boulevard, and um, I was called over to a residence, and I think there's been a shooting here. Okay, do you see a victim? Yes. How many people are shot? Just one, and... Um, do you know what part of the body? I think around the head and the neck. I just got here.
1: The person who shot him is still around?
0: Yeah, she's his wife.
1: The wife shot him and they're both there? Yeah. Is she hurt at all?
0: Uh, I'm not sure. I'm trying to calm her down. Did, uh, was
1: this on purpose or was this an accident or what, sir? Do you know what happened? I have no
0: idea. She was drunk. She said she killed her husband and I didn't believe her. All right, where's the weapon now? It's in my hand because um, she brought it to my house. What's your name, sir? My name's Ron. Ron Douglas.
1: All right, sir. We're going to get
0: officers on the
1: way. Okay. Before officers arrived, Brynn would make several more phone calls, including to her sister, where she stated, tell my children I love them. Many friends began arriving at the home as first responders and police arrived. Perhaps awakened by the commotion, Phil's nine-year-old son Sean came out into the living room of the home. Ron then ushers Sean out to the back door to be taken by police. He also hands over the 38 revolver. Meanwhile, Brynn is sitting in her bedroom with Phil lying dead on the bed. She is on the phone with her sister. She repeatedly states to her sister, please take care of my children and tell them I love them. The police officers positioned themselves outside of the bedroom and began calling Bryn's name. Bryn then states to her sister,
0: I gotta go, and hangs up the phone. At the same time, tactical officers were clearing the other rooms. They found Phil and Bryn's daughter, Bergen, and handed her to the child safety team. Once she was safely out of the dwelling, then they were ready to breach the locked bedroom door. Bryn lay down on the king-size bed beside Phil. She had taken a Charter Arms 38 revolver from the gun safe. She inserted the barrel into her mouth and fired a single shot. Dying instantly, her shooting hand coming to a rest against Phil's body. Officers announced themselves one last time and then breached the bedroom door, finding Phil and Bryn Hartman dead on the bed together. The news of Phil's murder at the hand of his partner traveled across the globe. From the local paparazzi to the mainstream media, reporters clamored to find people to talk and deliver details of the murder-suicide. While this became a media spectacle, it was very real for Phil and Bryn's families. It was also an absolute gut punch to those who had worked so closely with the beloved comedian.
1: On June 4, 1998, a combined service was held for Bryn and Phil at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. On the prayer cards handed out was a passage titled Death is nothing at all, which states, Death is nothing at all. I have only slipped away to the other room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, we still are.
0: The LA coroner's report came back and revealed that Brin's system tested positive for cocaine and a blood alcohol level of 0.11, as well as multiple prescription medications including Zoloft. The coroner stated In their report, that these were the factors that clouded Bryn's decision making that night. LAPD also cleared Ron Douglas of any wrongdoing, stating that he helped immensely in those stressful moments at the home. But there are those out there, including some of Bryn's family, that disagree with the coroner report. They state that the alcohol and cocaine levels in her system were not at all high. They believe that it was the Zoloft medication that had changed her mood in an extreme way. In 1999, the Hartman and Omdahl families sued drug manufacturer Pfizer, who manufactured the medication Zoloft. In the suit, the family claims that the drug which was prescribed for panic attacks actually made Bryn act in a way she normally would not have. Pfizer agreed to an out-of-court settlement. The amount of money and the details of that settlement are not public.
1: Tributes for Phil have been ongoing since his death. On June 3rd, 1998, the Groundlings Theater held an invite-only tribute show for The Fallen Comedian. It was a who's who of the L.A. comedy scene, filled with laughter and tears. SNL also aired a tribute episode on June 13th of 1998. The show was filled with the best of Phil's sketches and some sincere moments from his former castmates. The Simpsons decided to retire all of Phil's characters from the show, meaning that no one else would ever voice them. News Radio created a special episode in which Phil's character Bill dies, titled Bill Moves On. In this episode, the cast members are dealing with the death of Phil's character Bill.
0: It has often been rumored around Hollywood that comedian Andy Dick was the person who supplied Bryn with cocaine that night. This doesn't make Andy the person to blame for Phil's death, but it has certainly made people treat Andy Dick with a level of disdain. In 2007, Andy Dick went on Tom Green's internet talk show, and during this interview, he was asked if he did, in fact, give cocaine to Bryn that night. Andy Dick was evasive about, in his own words, "whether I gave Phil Hartman's wife cocaine." He then went on to state quote, if you're going to get drunk, you're going to go to a bar. If you're looking for drugs, you're going to go to somebody who you think does blow. She is somebody who that night wanted to get high, so she thinks, oh, he must have it, and I'm like, yeah, maybe I do. I don't know anything about her past. I didn't know any of that. Months later, after the interview, Andy Dick was in the Laugh Factory in LA, which is a comedy club. In walked Longtime SNL cast member and friend of Phil Hartman's, John Lovitz. Andy was sitting at the bar, and Lovitz walked up behind him, grabbed him by his head, and started bouncing his head off of the bar until blood started coming out of Andy Dick's nose. This, in some weird way, was John Lovitz's way of standing up for his friend Phil. Phil Hartman was a comedian's comedian. Lovers of comedy truly got his sense of humor and his commitment to the work. An entire generation of comedians will still, to this day, react in sadness and admiration when Phil's name comes up. We know that comedy is subjective, and what is funny in the past may not be funny anymore. But there will always be something about how Phil worked that will live on far more than the material that he created. Knowing that Phil grew up poor in Canada and rose to stardom is an inspiring tale. But unfortunately, it is also a cautionary tale about addiction, mental health, and intimate partner violence that far too many people know all too well. That's all we have
1: for this episode. We'd like to thank you for joining us on True North True Crime. Make sure to check us out on Patreon for bonus content or say hi on Instagram at tntcpod. We'll see you soon with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe, everyone.
0: Stay safe.